welcome to New Persuasive Words, a podcast of hope-seeking understanding. You're invited to listen in to an ongoing conversation about theology, culture, and politics between your co-hosts, Scott Jones and Bill Bohr. Regardless of topic, Bill and Scott offer intelligent insights and critiques, sometimes funny, occasionally contentious, but always remaining friends. Now, here are Scott and Bill. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 230 for the Jersey Shore edition. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr on vacation. Back to that you're at the shore, the Jersey Shore. I'm at Cape May. I'm at the, I'm at exit zero right now. On the way to Cape May, I fell in love with you. <laughs> well, we didn't go together, so don't. Yeah, that's let, yeah, such don't, a great don't. song. I was playing it for my wife last night, and it's a terrific song. It, it lists all the, we, it lists all the towns like they fall in love in Ocean City and they make their way. If you're gonna be my spouse, we got to go to the courthouse, like Cape May Courthouse, and courthouse, Avon yeah. is in it. Sea yeah, Isle. They, uh, she gets pregnant in Wildwood. Wild, yeah, wow, yeah, that's where. <laughs> Wildwood's, in the Wildwood's like that's like sort of like South Philly on the beach. A little bit, a little bit. Well, actually, and uh, um, Seattle can be that way too. Seattle can be a little bit. Yeah, there's a, a no shower happy hour at Seattle. You just walk out the beach and you're there. The beach bar is there. <laughs> no, there's some there's some wild pubs in uh, in Seattle. But anyway, no, it's beautiful down here, and uh, it was it was hot down here. I can only imagine how hot it was yesterday in Philadelphia. It was very, very hot. It's to the point where the dogs are not enthused about going outside. Well, they're still enthused, but then when they once they get out there, they're just like they don't want to go very far. Yeah, and I wouldn't if I was walking them in a fur coat. I wouldn't be enthused. Uh, no, either. I think I would. Uh, I would be feel the same way. And you're getting ready to go on vacation next week. Next week we'll we'll be like ships passing, passing in the day. We'll actually the, be like on cars the, on the Garden State. Passing on the Garden State. Yeah, Parkway. I'll be going to Ocean City. Less historic than Cape May. No, well, yes, less historic, yeah, but still, histor- I mean, you know. Yeah, well, we got all the camp meetings there. It was a very, uh, very important Wesley. A much more pious Cape town. <laughs> much more pious. Yeah. yeah. Methodist. Cape May is, ju- Cape May is, ju- that's why you may have to take a, you know, you may need to take a break and jump over to Sea Isle. But, well, what I like about Cape May is what I like about some of the towns in, like, north central Jersey. Is that, like, the it, it is zoned in a way that it looks like a historic town as opposed to certain like other towns on the yeah. Jersey shore that are just so developed right. and redeveloped right. and redeveloped and redeveloped where, you know, there's a, you, you, I think Cape May is like voted somewhere in some magazine, like second best place to spend Christmas behind yeah. Williamsburg, Virginia. Yeah, no, they, they really, they do it up down here. And uh, um, yeah, it's fun to come. It's come. It's fun coming. Here Have you been to the ugly mug? Absolutely. That's my place, man. I love the ugly mug. I think I brought that up to you. That's my. Yeah, I like the ugly mug. <laughs> yeah, particularly in the winter, you guys get a hot knocker there. That's the drink you want to go for. There. I've never had that, but. Yeah. Well, shall we get into our topic of the day? Yeah. Let, let us do that. Oh, yeah. I don't think we have, have we recorded since John McCain died. We have not. Yeah. So I think a lot of tributes. I mean, I uh, republished some, you know, reposted some things on resident exile. Um, again, a man who I uh, disagreed with frequently, if not maybe not 100% of the time on much of his politics, but uh, uh, I think he was an important, he was an important voice in the Senate. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, people, you know, we, we talk well of the dead, as we probably should. But uh, yeah, he was he was uh, a throwback. I don't, I, it's hard, I'm hard pressed to think 
who is the statesman in the Senate right now? He, he was um, he was kind of the last of that breed. Ted Cruz. Yeah. Like I said, I'm hard pressed to come up with a name. That would be I think I could come up with about 98 names and he would be the, I wouldn't get to him. <laughs> Al, Al Franken was that he said you he said you say that you I said I like Ted Cruz I'm I like Ted Cruz more than most people in the Senate do he said but, but in your book I, I effing hate, I hate him, him. <laughs> yeah I do but I like him more than most people in the Senate <laughs> he's like the guy that comes in the office kitchenette and microwaves fish at lunch he's like, he's like that guy but did, did you see where they they were trying to do a uh, uh, you know an attack ad on his opponent you showed a clip of him he was in a pump punk rock band in the 90s and uh people were like that's hey, awesome I, that's very cool <laughs> i know i i it's very it's cool i mean it's very yeah that guy's like cool. 45 young guy and he's like within a percentage point of the you know they're yeah it's pretty remarkable it is a pretty remarkable thing given what the texas is about as red as you can get although you know the cities are blue but uh, the state is very deeply deeply red yeah like Old Confederacy red, but uh, yeah, but even outside the, I mean, like in the extended metro areas, it's so it's becoming so diverse. Yeah, but no, it could true. become that's a true. blue state. It's one of those that might go not skip purple. It could wind up going sort of could, right from yeah. red to blue. You get you get the young Hispanic population to register. It could be a very different place very very quickly. Yeah, and there are, you know there are. I mean, Texas is. I lived there for three years. A fascinating. Fascinating place. It really, it really was an interesting place. Uh, fascinating people. And in television news, in one day, I think one day, the fourth Jack Ryan, right? The fourth Jack Ryan will debut. It's the guy from The Office. With, uh, who's yeah, who's a great director. I, I can't think of his name either. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a curious choice. But I think was it you that pointed out that actually closer to the literary? Right, right. Not, not a, not a sort of James Bond. Although they tried that with all of them, but I think the one that seemed least like that was Chris. Was Chris? Was it the guy Plague? The guy that is in Star Trek? He's the guy, the new Captain Kirk. He's the one that seemed most secret agent-y. Right. Because right. Harrison Ford and Alec Baldwin both. Yeah. They yeah, tried they, to be bookish a little bit. Yeah, I actually liked Harrison Ford. He was. Uh, yeah, I loved Alec yeah, but, Baldwin. Yeah, that was good. Was the you have to be. Only- you have to be careful, Mister Ryan. Not everything in it. Most things in a submarine don't react well to bullets. Yeah, like me, I don't react well to bullets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like I like Sean Connery. Didn't he? I mean, I know you know he's probably the only uh, the only Russian sub commander with a strange Scottish accent. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And pretty much. That's, it's kind of like you know in the old movies, the Romans all have British accents. You ever noticed that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So now all the Russians will have Scottish. Scottish accents, yeah, it's pretty. Funny. You know, you do what you can do for do what you can suspend do. Uh, disbelief, or yeah, suspend disbelief. Yeah. So, so you're the topic at hand. Let's talk about the church. All right. The, I, the, I saw. A, I'm on vacation. I forget what is that again. Thank you, exactly. Me? It's it it's it's got four walls. It, it, this is the church. This is the steeple. Open the doors, and uh, yeah, there are the people. Yeah, I remember that. Little now. hand motions. So I saw a piece recently in Commentary Magazine, which I heard about. I think from I think I heard about from their podcast, but it was by a guy. Let me pull his name up. Really quickly here. Now you should put commentary magazine and podcast in context for. Uh, oh yeah, it's it's commentary is an eighty 
plus year old magazine of cultural commentary, culture and political commentary from a conservative perspective. I, I feel, I've listened to the ad so much in the podcast. Now I know it. I'm like, reading the ad. <laughs> you know, but it's, it's, they, it's, it's a very interesting, it's a very thoughtful conservative magazine. It's not sort of Fox News-ish. It's, it's, it's the best of sort of thoughtful conservatism. And right. they do an excellent podcast called The Commentary Magazine Podcast, which John Podhorowitz, who many people have seen on Morning Joe, he usually wears terrible sweaters. And <laughs> he, he was the guy that John Oliver lambasted for like on the and now this where he speaks like for like 90 seconds about the bachelor finale. He's trying to make some kind of Trump analogy, but he just goes on and on about the bachelor finale. Yeah, yeah. No, it's I just saw that on amazing. Right. But yeah. he's he's a great host and they have I think it's he and two other Jewish guys and one Roman Catholic whose name is Surab Amari, who I think converted from Islam yeah, he's a re- in I think 2016. He's a yeah, relatively recent convert. Yeah. Yeah. So very interesting guy. And he wrote a piece called How the Media Fails Church Coverage, Disassociation and Projection. This was in commentary. You can find it on the online edition of the magazine. It was sort of a, a blog post. And he talks about how the this the current discussion in the media of the Pope Francis alleged cover-up in this bombshell letter that was dropped by Cardinal... What was the Cardinal's name? Cardinal... uh, um, The Cardinal's name is escaping me right now. Adula? Something like Adula or something like that? Yeah, he was was a, a... Apostolic Nuncio, he was a, he was basically a, a a Vatican diplomat to the United yeah, States. Yeah, one of those cardinals at large. Cardinals at large. That's the that's my old job. And he he showed Float, up a floating cardinal. Floating cardinal. He showed up at this Italian. It's like DH rule, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's you know some people are like yeah, it's not. We're playing real baseball where the pitcher hits. I don't know if floating cardinals is real no, baseball. Uh, he is a cardinal to be named later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But he showed up at this Italian journalist's doorstep in like a baseball cap, like wanting, you know, to dictate this letter, wanting some help with this letter, right? which was going to be released saying that basically Francis, Pope Francis buried the alleged abuse, which it seems to be credible and well-documented of Cardinal McCarrick, Theodore Uncle Ted McCarrick, as he's called in some places. Well, uh, who, the, well, the abuse is well documented. Not necessarily there was a cover up. Right, but, the cover but, up is not right. The cover yeah. up is not well documented. Right, right. Or, or maybe, maybe, fallacious. I mean, fallacious. This could be fabricated. Right, for right, right. It might not be. But the he had a dossier apparently that was well known. Benedict had censured him and he was not allowed to go to seminaries and stay there and things like that because he had a habit of seducing young seminarians. And right. he said, don't call me father or your accent, call me Uncle Ted, uh, which right. Right. is, yeah. I don't know. I don't yeah. want to be called uncle or anything. Yeah, right. But he, uh, he, so he, what this, what this piece by Saurabh Amari says is that, you know, the media has sort of covered this as, the, just a sort of left, right, blue state, red state. Here's the red state people, the conservatives just trying to s- slander a liberal progressive leading light. And, you know, the conservatives in the church wind up looking like a kind of angry GOP obstructionist subversive 
congressional group and Francis looks like Obama or something like that. You know? well, well, there is, you know, there is a lot of discontent with Pope Francis among traditionalists. That's that's that is well att- attested to. Right. Sure. And, and some people are saying this is a way to try to this is a way to try to get at him. And part of the point of the article, as I read it, was that rather than look at the substance of the charge, it gets played out in the larger debate of conservative versus liberal factions in in the church. Is that kind of the gist of it? Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that's interesting is that people are actually, you know, people like Bill Donahue of the Catholic League, who usually, you know, would say, you know, I mean, you want to talk about somebody that's like smells anti-Catholic discrimination everywhere. Right. Like you you show that guy a Rorschach test. (laughs) This is (laughs) anti-Catholic. He sees black and he sees, he sees the know nothing party when he's when he's right, in right, shot, right, yeah. right, right, right. It, it's white. It's black and white. It should be white collar, black background. It's anti-Catholic. <laughs> but but Donahue actually it was concerned. No, maybe that's because he's a traditionalist on some. I'm not sure, but you know, but, but some people are saying this is even some conservatives or even people that are not this traditionalist angry party, but just faithful Catholics or. Mm-hmm you know, concerned and, right. and, and yeah, if this was true, there would be great reason to be concerned. Yeah. Right? But the, the question is also, you know, it, if Francis allegedly sort of lifted this censure and kind of made Cardinal McCarrick a back in good standing, gave him sort of carte blanche to do things he was previously prohibited from doing, then, then that would be a, a great cause for concern. But you could, you could also see how this letter also names lots of people as part of the quote gay Catholic right. you know, agenda, that sort of stuff of Father uh, Jonathan Martin, Colbert, you know, they've, everybody's favorite Catholic on TV, the Jesuit, right. former you know, chaplain to the Colbert Report, actually, that these are all part of the gay, you know, right. left wing, gay liberal, you know, conspiracy. So you could see this as, okay, we're dropping an accusation here, which if you said there's a gay Catholic underground, okay, that's, you know, that doesn't make page six, you know, but right. if there's an accusation there, sure. then then it rises to the top. And, and, and subsequent to this, the Cardinal who wrote the letter is now, has now disappeared. <laughs> and he's living somewhere of Dan Brown. I hear. Yeah. 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 With an albino. monk. <laughs> well, you know, isn't, isn't this part of the larger problem of the way media covers uh, religious things in general and Christian things in particular? Don't, don't you think? I mean, I think maybe we're better, you know, uh, for instance, again, regardless of what you think about CBN, uh, yeah, Brody was part of a, a um, panel the other day on on MSNBC. So there's a sense where there is maybe some attempts to try to bring in, um, you know, re- religiously informed journalists. I mean, Martin is someone who shows up a lot. Um, so, but I think overall, there's still a sense of hey, John Meacham is, yeah, you know, yeah. others, you know, and, and, who are regular correspondents who do a good job, yeah, and, and brings it and, and talks about his faith, uh, uh, and brings that in. So, you know, we might be better off than we were 20 years ago, but I still think there's a there's a challenge when you know there there does seem to be, for instance, you know, let's take the uh, infamous uh, meeting earlier this week of the hundred pastors and Christian leaders at the White House, uh, uh, and Trump was extolling them that uh, they need to get out there and fight for him because it would be dangerous if the Democrats take over. Uh, no, we were not invited to that. We did strangely. not. We were not invited. We didn't even have a chance to sign the Paula White Bible. Uh, now, 
Uh, I think most of us, of, uh, of I, it, you don't have to be left of center to find this that whole thing disturbing. Uh, and, uh, you know, the one lesson uh, people don't seem to learn, particularly church people, and this, this is, uh, you know, I mean, the hero worship of clergy and politician in this country goes back to George Washington. I mean, the person who made up the story about the cherry tree, the person who made up the story about... Washington praying at, you know, Valley Forge kneeling, that was a clergy. <laughs> That's not in the biography. These are not documents. No, those are not documents. So the idea of clergy getting, you know, jumping on political bandwagons and being intoxicated by power is a long story, as is clergy being critical uh, of power. Uh, and so that's, you know, it's kind of the history of uh, the history of the church, really, you know, and, and part of it is, you know, our own issue of how we, how we navigate power. But how how that gets reported is a whole other issue, you know, from people outside looking at church. I think there is a tendency for um, more progressive people to be nervous, feeling that somehow um, an undue influence of religious issues or religious views on politicians uh, is part of how we've gotten into the state we have with uh, what's going on among the judiciary and other places. Um, and then there's also frequently, I think this is part of the strange but uh, consistent support of conservative evangelicals of Donald Trump, that uh, they have been misrepresented and they have been marginalized. Uh, now, there is, I think, a grain of truth in that. Um, that doesn't justify following a, uh, a toddler uh, as president. But nonetheless, um, you know, you can, that, that there's a grain of truth in both of those, those perspectives. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that, is intriguing or, or, or interesting to know is a shift. Jeffers a couple years ago wrote a book called Our Twi- the, uh, the Twilight's Last Gleaming. This is before the Trump candidacy, but for, of recent memory, this is like two or three years ago or something, or three, I guess three, three and a half years ago or something. And he said that he was critical of Luther's idea, you know, that I'd rather, if I'm sick, I'd rather have a, you know, a Turkish or Muslim surgeon right. than a Christian butcher, you know, that, that you know, when it comes to the medical right. arts, I'd rather have someone that knows what they're doing rather than someone that right, shared my right. religious belief if if they're not skilled. And he was very critical of this and said, we need the Christian worldview. We right. need to stop the culture war and let be less pragmatic. And the way we'll defend righteousness is through ultimately being less pragmatic and more idealistic about Christian convictions and, and right and principled people. And so then to do this much of a 180 where I just found something that – was dated August 28th, 2016. It's two days ago where they were quoting Jefferson. Why we'll continue to support the president. And it's because it's not his values or his personal life. It's the policies. And of course we don't support payoffs to porn stars, but we, but he's the most conservative activist sort of president or conservative advocate, you know, in the, in, in history that we can remember that includes Reagan and, and Bush. And so they're, they're, there you have the sense that, okay, uh, the ends justify the means, which that has a, a long tradition in politics. It's just that generally the evangelical movement in the past decades has said that's not the case, no. right? That, that more, especially Mike Pence, you know, like, I mean, he's somebody that was outspoken on this, that the ends don't always justify the means and, and that you – and that things like character matter yeah. and, and that doesn't matter how savvy or skilled someone is or how much influence they wield, that if they don't have the sort of personal, moral and spiritual integrity 
to steward the office that we ought not to consider them. So there's a huge 180 on something that seemed to be essential to the movement's identity. Yeah, the moral majority has become the utilitarian minority. Yeah, and 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 an influential. Yeah, no. And the fact is minorities in this current divided, the way we're so divided, um, you know, minorities, I mean, we may not be a parliamentary system, but you're going to have to weld together divergent groups in order to get elected in this country. Yeah, and what's interesting, I think Robert Jones in their last, uh, of PRI, pointed this out in their last survey, that while evangelicals are a decreased degree of uh, of the population, their share of the Republican base has not dropped. Right, yeah. So they're, the, so, so they're becoming disproportionately more influential, as there are fewer Republicans. Yeah, that's, you know, that's part of why we, you know, we, we talk, we applaud. I mean, we sometimes are not without our critique, but we understand what, you know, our friends and colleagues uh, Matt Milner, uh, Jeff Finch, uh, Jeff Hostler, and, you know, all those guys who are still, you know, very much part of the evangelical movement. Uh, and even Doug Padgett, who claims, still claims the evangelical uh, label. Why, uh, why they are, you know, nobly swimming upstream in many ways, trying to say things are different. We, uh, but, you know, we have a new listener, uh, a guy that's uh, from the area I grew up in, who is uh, doing some great work uh, in a parachurch, an evangelical parachurch ministry. I, you know, I'll leave him unnamed right now, but, you know, who really struggles with the fact that he is not a right-wing Republican, and it's even effect- he's doing great work for the kingdom of God, but because he won't endorse Trump, it's affected his donor base. We should greet him the way Mark Levin greets his new listeners. I was listening to the Mark Levin show a few weeks ago, and a caller, the conservative, you know, talk radio host, and a caller said, "Hey, Mark, I just I'm, I'm new to the show. I just started listening last week." He goes, "Where the hell you been, pal?" <laughs> I'm like, "Wow, way to really welcome the new listener." I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Jim Kirk, Samantha Konauer, and Jordan DeMaze. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Well, I, you know, the other thing, too, I mean, it's a political speech, but I think uh, there's been a lot of play of Lindsey Graham's, uh, as re- when he was a member of the House of Representatives, his speech about the Clinton impeachment, 
uh, and talked about the basis of morality and, uh, and why, you know, they needed to vote for impeachment. Uh, and again, I think if you go back to the roots of the, a lot of the anti-Clinton sentiment among evangelicals, it was, it was, it was started about, it was started in morality. Uh, because one could argue that a lot of Bill Clinton's policies were, um, were, were pretty moderate when it comes to the spectrum of, uh, of, of the Democratic Party. I mean, part of what got Clinton elected as president was trying to move the Democratic Party more to the central center. Um, but even this hate of the Clintons really initially was born out of moral issues. And uh, now it's just become a, a Zenic phobia. I mean, the fact is that uh, John Meacham this morning said the only history uh, Trump seems to care about is, is uh, Clinton's emails. <laughs> the only, that could be true. That could be true. But, you know, I think and, you know, you hear it. Uh, I saw a right wing Christian guy I knew from high school, uh, you know, the day that, uh, you know, the day that uh, I guess both uh, Manafort and Cohen uh, made the news and Manafort was uh, you know, convicted as a felon. Cohen was uh, pleaded guilty of felony and, 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 and implicated the president. Uh, I saw somebody put up, uh, it either was Benghazi or, uh, gosh, who was the attorney that killed himself uh, during the Clinton administration? Oh, it, was it, Vince, it wasn't Vince yeah, Foster. Yeah, Vince, Vince, Vince Foster. Foster. Vincent. That's like the first name we've gotten right. Vincent Paul. Yeah, we've, this has been a bad summer for name. Yeah. But the person posted, the, you know, this was the day Vince Foster killed himself. So, you know, I mean, um, I, I do think the sense where, uh, you, you know, it, it gets back to the problem when you react to a reaction. Okay. In other words, are you, are you, you, let's say there's a legitimate complaint about the way religious issues are covered in the news. But the answer to that is not being reactionary. And, and now the, you know, from taking the, taking the cue from the president, now it's not only, you know, chanting fake news, but now he's even challenging algorithms in the, in the uh, you know, he's now he's challenging technology algorithms. Fake Google. <laughs> fake man. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's funny because Don Jr. said that if some conservative in Silicon Valley created a conservative Facebook, we'd move all our followers over there. As if things aren't tribal enough, right? Like you did on a platform that guaranteed it was tribal. <laughs> yeah. What would, what would be? What would you call a conservative Facebook? Right book. Right book. <laughs> Defacebook. Defacebook. I don't know. Yeah. What would you? Yeah, that's very interesting. Like yeah. you could. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm sure there's somebody working on that there. I would like the non-Farmville. <laughs> Although Farmville's kind of dead. I mean, that's sort of those kind of games. But yeah, so I think so two thoughts on this. The first one, I had, the first one is related to the evangelicals. I remember when Gersten wrote that piece a few months ago, I think in the Atlantic, about evangelicals selling their soul, and David French wrote a, a critical, appreciative but critical response, and his response was. The conclusion said, basically, evangelicals are just doing what everybody else does, which means they're just not exceptional. Like, they're, they're political Americans right. and not exceptional. So I wonder if you admit, like Jeffers does, that we are the utilitarian minority now. Are right. you – does that mitigate the criticism, right? If you're – if you realize that in order to gain leverage, you will compromise or at least change your standards, right. is that – is that reprehensible if you acknowledge it? 
Well, then you have to drop the stuff like God's on our side out of your language. In other words, if you're just going to become a, a political entity, then you have to kind of back off the, the God rhetoric. Well, what if you're just saying God's a, a, pra- a pragmatist? God's on the side of that it's a great moral achievement to limit abortions or, and to preserve morality in the public sense because it helps to stabilize families and ultimately make our culture a better place to live. And if you have to kind of support people who privately or personally you couldn't endorse their lifestyle, but publicly they become co-belligerents. Could you say that that's not not godly? Sure. I guess you could say, I mean, occasionally you have to wipe out the Midianites, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, who who misses (laughs) them now? (laughs) I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah, I could probably hear someone making that argument. Hey, God wants, you know, periodically God says, wipe out the Midianites. We're just trying to wipe out, you know, the cultural Midianites. Yeah, I can hear people making that argument and saying it's biblical. (laughs) And to my response, go read a book, read a theological book. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, again, again, this gets to like kind of Christian realism and pragmatism and the limits of that. Although, I mean, what happens when it's a Democrat who has personal moral failings? I, my guess is that the critiques will not be limited to policy, that that, right. that they no. will. I mean, this is so – so it will be interesting to see if that's consistent, that if if now in the, in the post-Trump era that we – that personal issues are now off the table, you know, that, that they might critique democratic policies, but will the evangelicals – back off of the moral, personal character of individuals. Who knows? I mean, I, 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 I would guess not. But if they did that, that would be a step in the direction of at least consistency. Yeah, yeah. I guess to be, de- to be seen, right? To be, de- to be determined. To be, de- to be determined. So my second question or insight, which I think is related to the piece and commentary by Sora Amari and his, his sort of – the way he describes how the media sort of puts an unnuanced – overlay of sort of right left onto the Vatican battles. And I, I do think there's something to that. Well, you're right. There is a traditionalist right. kind of disgruntled party in the Catholic church when that disgruntled frustration is targeted at Francis. When you look at John Paul Benedict and Francis, there's not in the theological sense, there's not a huge amount of difference there's there. Not. There's nuance and, and emphasis. And even on policies, I mean, read with the stuff Benedict said on climate change or capitalism. Right. It's not markedly different. In fact, you know, John Paul II, and I think The Threshold of Hope, a little book that I think was dialogues right. he gave, people accused him of being a universalist for some stuff he said that was, imp- yeah. that was actually influenced by von Balthasar. And, you right. know, and yeah. so he... You know, the, this stalwart conser- viewed as conservative of the church, you know, it could was mistaken for being a universalist. So this is these are things where when you look at the last three papacies, I think the theological and ethical nuance is is missed in that. I think John Paul Benedict and Francis have much more in common Absolutely. than they do start differences. And those commonalities, I mean, it's hard to they're, they're not easily mappable. No, uh, I think on the yeah. on the sort of left right map, and they're all orthodox, right? Very much, but so. sort of conservative liberal doesn't really do justice. To it doesn't. The, it doesn't fit either. No, I, I, you know, I think, you know, hopefully, I, you know, I hope that this is not true about Francis. I think because I, you know, I've used the analogy in terms of I think these are three potentially the three um, most important popes in the Catholic Church for a thousand years, and three of the best. And uh, 
you know, my, my analogy is that, uh, you know, John Paul was the starting pitcher. Benedict was the middle relief and Francis is the closer, uh, for a lot of change that I think sets up, um, non-Western Catholicism to, to be the, you know, to the, the potential of the shift in leadership to the uh, non-Western world and Catholicism, I think, has been set up by those three guys. I think trying to uh, to have a lively, intellectual, embracing spirituality. Um, I, I think, yeah, I think that's. Um, I think you're right. I think the fact that people try to put them in one camp or the other to me is both a failure of uh, imagination and a failure of understanding their teaching, and a failure to understand the breadth of the Catholic teaching as well. Yeah, and so that. And again, you know, media is underfunded and, and that, you know, the effect of that is certainly fewer specialists and that sort of thing. But yeah, the, uh, these kinds of things do distort, I think, the, our, the popular understanding of the church, and which, yeah. you know, I mean, it's not the world's job to properly understand the church, of course. I mean, but, but the problem is also when it affects Christian self-understanding, that's probably not a great thing. No, and I think it, it, I guess it's once again a call for us to, uh, to do the kind of thinking and praying that helps us set our own pace. And, uh, um, you know, for instance, this idea of the fallacy that conservative values equal Christian values is something that, um, that needs to be continued, lifted up, not as a political issue, but as a biblical, a theological issue and a battle for the, for the really what Jesus wants in, in Christ's church. Yeah, and I also think that the kind of one of the things that I found interesting is that in the conservative media, there has been much more discussion of actually the fate of the Catholic Church, its right. relationship to the West, and the theological orientation of the Church, which in general, conservatives these days seem to care more, seem to care more well, about religion. But it's, it's, it's what's interesting to me is that there's not a sort of theological recognition that, that, this sort of original sin is is goes for the church too. It's not an original yeah. sin free zone, and that right. this sort of you know sinner and saint you know always being on the way is part of how the church deals with its failings. That, yeah. that we shouldn't be. It's only when the church acts like the Pharisee that says, right. looking at the publican, you know, the oh right. the barkeep. Thank God I'm not like him. Thank yeah, God I'm. Yeah. The, but it's when we realize that you know we're mourning by you know we live by grace and grace alone that that while we're greatly disturbed by failings in the church it it's not utterly shocking because of a realistic estimate of the human condition yeah the sin reflects the life of the of the public and the cover up is the life of the pharisee yes yeah. yes yeah all right folks well you have a good vacation i'll i will wave you to too. you on the garden state exactly All right, man. God bless everybody. Hey, listeners. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of New Persuasive Words. Hope you enjoyed Scott and Bill's conversation and will join us back here next time. Until then, thanks for listening and God bless.